You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Good day, listeners. Welcome to yet again another episode of the Center for Human Rights podcast series, Africa Rights Talk. My name is Tatenda Msinahama, and I'll be your host today. In this conversation, we have Dr. Ayodele Sogunro. I will ask him to introduce himself and describe the nature of the work that he does. Thank you very much, Tatenda. My name is Ayodele Sogunro, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Faculty of Law, University of Pretoria. I am also the project manager at the Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity and Expression and Sex Characteristics Unit, so GSQ Unit, at the Center for Human Rights Faculty of Law, also at the University of Pretoria. Thank you. So we're here today because you recently uh, attained your PhD qualification and we're here to talk about that, how that journey was and basically what your research um, focused on. So for the benefit of our listeners, can you explain to us what that journey was like, particularly considering the fact that you're also an alumnus of the HRDA program? by the Center for Human Rights at master's level. So how was that like and uh, what made you or inspired you to pursue that um, journey to attaining a PhD? Uh, the HRDA, Human Rights and Democratization in Africa program, you know, as you know, is a master's program that tries to bring in people from all over Africa to uh, expand their knowledge and understanding of human rights issues on the continent, um, especially from an African perspective rather than you know what we usually have in universities outside Africa. Um, it's it's uh, there are quite a lot of reasons you know why anybody would do the masters and then proceed to do a PhD afterwards. Uh, for me it wasn't so much about just trying to be a researcher or somebody just wants to collect data and you know study or someone in the library, but it had to do with social change and in particular being able to contribute to capacity building for legal uh, uh, scholars in the area of LGBT rights in Africa. Um, in Nigeria, where I am from, you can almost count on one hand the number of lawyers who are also academics, academic scholars that deal with LGBT issues. Too often you see that this is not an area that many lawyers care about or that many existing scholars also care about. And certainly not many legal scholars also care about. And uh, it's something that I felt that I would be doing a lot of good into the community by helping to build that capacity and coming here myself. So I started with the master's program and then now I am I, I did my PhD which I finished in 2020-2021 and then now I am doing a postdoctoral research fellowship. Perfect. So can you walk us through the areas of focus that you spoke on in your research? So like, like, like I mentioned, my general focus is on protecting and promoting SOGI rights in Africa. Um, as the LGBTQ plus community in Africa is still very, very much uh, marginalized, is still very much oppressed by discriminatory laws, and is still very subjected to violence without adequate protection from law, accountability against people who commit these violence acts. But from a more specific uh, angle, my research focuses around the enforcement, the evolution and enforcement of discriminatory and criminalizing laws in Nigeria and the underlying hegemonic power dynamics 
that you know influence the evolution and enforcement of these laws. In particular, I look at how these laws are part of a wider social control, uh, system of social control that is leveraged by the political elite to perpetuate their hegemonic power. And my main argument in my thesis is that in order to advance the legal protection of sexual and gender minorities in Nigeria, we advocates must critically understand and take measures to reduce the underlying power dynamics in the criminalizing laws. Mm, so what are these underlying power dynamics that um, discriminate against uh, sexual minorities in Nigeria? So in, in general, I try to explore uh, three interlinking themes on, uh, on, on this. I try to look at the issue of uh, hegemonic power. I try to look at the issue of uh, uh, social exclusion. And I try to look at the issue of uh, elitism and elite interests and how all these create a system of power that favor a small group of people over the benefits of the, I mean, over the majority. Um, in, in general, if you look at most issues in other societies that have to do with exclusion, you tend to find that you have usually a small, a small section of the society being excluded from enjoying uh, every anything in society by the rest. So, for example, in, in certain places, it might be oh, based on race, it might be based on religion, it might be based on gender, but it's often just like a minority in the society. So there might be people with disabilities or migrants who do not have access to enjoying all of social goods. But when you look at most places in Africa, and Nigeria not being an exception, um, you see that in reality, it is the majority of the society that is excluded in some form or the other. There is always something that prevents everybody from enjoying the full benefit of citizenship or even just being in that society. So when we look at sexual and gender minorities, we shouldn't just look at it in isolation that they are being discriminated against, specifically because they are you know, gay or lesbian or so on. But we should look at it as part of a wider system of excluding almost everyone in society for the benefit of just a few, maybe 10% of the society. So what happens is essentially as though you exclude 10% of the basis of sexuality, 10% of the basis of gender, 10% of the basis of uh, disability. But by the time you've done all of that, 90% of people are excluded and only 10% really enjoy that society. But that 10% that enjoy the society, they are not enjoying it because they are straight only or because they are not women or because, no. They are enjoying it because they control economic and political power. So they, they, it's, at the end of the day, becomes a class issue rather than just a gender issue. It becomes a power, an issue of power and how a certain small section of society controls power throughout the whole society. But more particularly, when it comes to the issue of sexual and gender minorities, what you see again from the research I did is, is that there is a system of creating a certain kind of uh, hegemonic value system. It started with the colonial government, through to the military governments, and eventually to the current civilian governments in power. They create these hegemonic values where they think of as the ideal citizen. You must conform to these values. And then people who are short of that value are criminalized immediately. They are thought of as threats to the stability of society. And as long as the people who are at the top of this 
of this society can continue to claim that they are focused on protecting society from these threats, from these people who want to destabilize that order. They can continue to legitimately wield power even without doing any of the other things that normal functional governments do. So even if a society is falling into economic ruin, even if prices are rising, even if there is no food, there are no utilities, public transportation is a mess, as long as they can say that they are fighting gay people because they are protecting those values that they've constructed as the, import, the real good citizen, then they can get away with not doing any of the other things that they ought to be doing. So in Nigeria, it started with the British who say, oh, we are civilizing people. And part of the process of civilization is to import these Victorian moral values that defines what a good subject, a good English subject is. And that's part of that thing obviously includes, oh, don't be gay, you know, don't, don't be uh, sexual or gender minority in any kind of way. And anybody who does that doesn't fit within the pattern of good citizenship. So that is the ostensible apparent reason that they put the laws in place. But the underlying point is that in doing this, they exclude any number of people based on that idea that they are not conforming to social expectations. And the people who are excluded will become outcasts even in their own society, which also justifies British rule because as long as those people exist, they can keep saying they're on a civilizing mission. The same thing too, even after the British left, you had a military coming. And they also would justify the reason they intervened in the government for to protect society from threats, which again are defined by their own value systems. And the value system, of course, that made the most sense was the one in which most of them had been trained in this idea of British colonial values. And the same thing even when civilians got into power, they also continued that same pattern where, oh, we are protecting our society from threats. And so that system of hegemonic value is perpetuated and very few people get to really benefit from society because in some way or other they are always considered as threats. And more importantly, or should I say most importantly, it is the economic or social class of these people or of everyone in society that determines the extent to which they are considered threats or not. Not really the you know, their sexuality or their gender or other aspects of their identities. So if you are poor and you are on the streets, you become a subject of harassment. You are profiled and policed. And then when you are discovered to be gay, that then becomes an additional burden on you, on your identity. Because it's like, how are you poor and yet you dare to be gay? It's like you are now a double threat to the stability of society. So rather than address the issue of poverty, they would rather address your sexuality mm. and make it seem like you being uh, 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 of this sexuality or this gender identity, you are a criminal and that is part of why you, know, you are poor anyway. Or more importantly, as long as they don't even bother, I mean, as long as they are focused on your sexuality, they don't need to explain or justify why you are even in a state of economic deprivation. And meanwhile, other people in society would not look at you as, you know, a co-victim. Even though they are also poor, you are also poor. They don't look at you as a co-victim. They also see you as, oh, an existential threat. Because as long as they are not gay, then they can still claim to be closer to the ideal citizen than you, who is both poor 
and, and gay. And in this way, you see that the policing now self-reinforces because even people who should be sharing with you the issue of you know, equal and distributive justice in society actually will become your oppressors and they do the work of the political elites for them. And as long as they are, they are focused on you, nobody focuses on the people who should actually be delivering equality in society. So based on my understanding, and I, I still stand to be corrected, I get the sense that in your research, you're simply saying the issues around sexual minorities are just used by governmental officials as a pawn to deflect from the real issues that are actually affecting society. And the same kind of political play can be used for other issues, not only sexual minority issues or those the violations against them, but other issues, for example, persons with disabilities. You can look at other vices that happen in society and you simply say they're just focusing on these things and yet we're supposed to be holding them accountable to making sure that um, there's an equal and just society for all. Bearing that in mind, let's say that's our point of, of departure. I understand that political theory dictates or postulates that there's a social contract. Once we vote people into power, they're supposed to deliver services and to make sure that there's, you know, freedom for everyone and they can or enjoy, like you rightly put it, an equal society. So my next question then comes to, would it be wrong to assume that the manner in which different political leaders approach issues of sexual minorities, in a sense, downplays the fact that these are rights that are awarded to people and they are people first before their sexuality or their gender and all of that. Are these, are these aspects of respecting people's right to dignity and all of that supposed to be embedded in democratic governance? Yes, indeed. Uh, one would think, you know, that if there is a democratic system in place, ideally then all of these rights should follow as a natural consequence. But, you know, uh, like I've tried to explain in other places to people, Nigeria may have people who are in power by virtue of their political elections and all of that, but it is not a democracy in the sense that the ideological understanding of what a democracy entails, including democratic principles such as the rule of law, independence of the judiciary, freedom of the press, and accountability of government and political office holders, doesn't exist in the Nigerian context. And so, the only thing that exists is that people get to power through elections. But how you get to power alone is not sufficient to make a democracy. It is also how you use that power, for whose benefit you use it. And in Nigeria, how that power is used is used still based on the same templates, still based on the same structures that the military and the, and the colonial government designed and perfected. So, when the colonial government came, they created a system of laws, they created a system of administration that they left behind when they, when they went. And when the military came into power, they took those same systems that the military is and, and re-perfected re it. And when the civilian government came to power, they just continued using that same template. That's why we are still using laws that were designed by the colonial government to subjugate people at the time. But the people in power today, because they buy into that ideology of subjugation, they buy into that ideology of discrimination, do not care that you are supposed to be in a democratic setting. They still continue using that ideology to perpetuate the injustices and inequalities in society. Now, um, the, the question though is, now that they are in power now, 
Why are they still using the same templates? Why are they not using a more democratic template? And the answer is simple, which is why we come back to in, in, in the issue of my research. That's the same reason that they would not want to uh, uh, give other people in society any kind of equal opportunities. The same reason that they would not fulfill the demands of governance that society ordinarily requires. The same reason that they do not want to create a free and fair level playing field and opportunities for everyone in society. It's the same reason they are not going to decriminalize laws against sexual and gender minorities just like that. Because it will require them to assess the underlying ideological framework, the underlying value system of the society. And if the underlying value system is one of inclusion, if it is one of non-discrimination, if it is one of equality, then that would apply not just to the issue of gender and sexual minorities, but even to the issue of how people get to power, even to the issue of elections, even to the issue of economic resources, even to the issue of you know, uh, 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 basically power sharing within the society. And once they go, it's like for them, it becomes a slippery slope. Once they begin to allow democratic and equality freedom in one area, then they have to allow it in every other area. Otherwise, there is an inconsistency in the ideological worldview. But as long as they can discriminate against minorities, such as sexual and gender minorities, and get away with it in the name of protecting against uh, these threats to society that they are the guardians of, then they can also get away with discriminating in other areas. They can get away with taking government's money and not being accountable for it because they are supposed to be the supreme, you know, knowers, the supreme knowledge bearers of society. So if they tell society that we do not want these people, we shall not recognize their rights because we know that this is the right thing for our society. They can also use the same language to tell people we do not need to account to you how we spend money because we know the right thing for society. And that is why I say it is not just because they hate gay people that they keep these laws on the books. It is because it helps to perpetuate their own power too. So as long as they can keep reinforcing discrimination in one area, then they can keep reinforcing discrimination in other areas, including discrimination between the government and the and the governors, between the rulers and the rulers, essentially. Um, one, one framework I use in particular, like I mentioned earlier, is that of political homophobia. And when you look at political homophobia, it is essentially the strategic use of homophobia for political purposes. It's a new framework that has just begun to receive attention within academic circles. And essentially, you see that uh, in, even though politicians say again and again that, oh, when, when we are implementing or, or, or creating uh, homophobic laws, we are only listening to the will of our people. We are only doing what our people want. This is what our religious people want. This is what our traditional people want. You, you realize that there is a disingenuity in their arguments because why is it that only when it comes to this issue of sexuality, or reproductive systems and things like that, that they suddenly become listeners to the people. Because these are the same set of rulers who, in other areas, from corruption to state capture, to the use of resources, to the allocation of resources, to just even 
acting with dignity in public and in, I mean, recognizing people's dignity, they don't care about what the people want. If they wanted to put land, uh, a railway through, for example, subsequent lands, which is important to the cultural uh, 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 whatever identity of the people, they will do it. They don't care about traditions then. They want to do something that will bring their money. They don't care whose tradition is being God or whose religion is being God. In fact, if you protest, they will shoot you. But suddenly, when it comes to this issue of sexuality, they start the rhetoric of powerlessness. Like, oh, we can't protect sexual and gender minorities, even though we have nothing against them, but we can't protect them because that's not what our people want. And then you ask yourself, when did you start listening to your people? You don't listen to them in any other thing. Why are you listening to them now? Because in reality, that is not about what the people want. That is what they are crafting as what the people want so that it can justify what they do in other instances. Because I don't know that there's any serious country in Africa where the people are on the streets actually actively protesting to the government to do anything about sexual and gender minorities. Some people may say it, but it's not the game as if there's a mass demand for this anyway. But instead, the politicians create the threats, then they start working to create a solution to the threats, and then saying, oh, this is a threat you must deal with, or to justify their own continued lack of accountability to the people. So I like how you clearly, you know, explained um, this issue and the how things play out in the Nigerian context. And I couldn't help but see similarities from, you know, how other political leaders in Africa have, you know, used this issue as a as a political front to run away from issues that are actually affecting society. Um, so I want to find out from you, are there any similarities from your research? Do we see that playing out in Africa and in the or in the rest of the world? So uh, what, what, one of the ways in which we understand political homophobia is that it is modular in nature. It is modular in nature, meaning that there is a consistency in how it is used and deployed, even across different spaces and even across different times. Mm. So when you go to Nigeria and you study the use of political homophobia by politicians in periods of legitimacy crisis or in periods of economic stagnation or in periods of transition, you find that the same rhetoric is what you find when you go to Ghana facing that same same periods or into Zimbabwe or to the Zambia or to Tanzania and not just in Africa even if you go outside Africa if you go to Russia if you go to uh, Hungary you will see that it's the same language the leaders they use all of them talking as though there's some existential threats coming after their people which they as the guardians of the people need to push back against in order to protect their people they all use that same language and then when you go even to the West, which is often attacked as a source of these threats, even inside the West, you find people in the West saying they too want to protect their people from, from these threats that is coming from somewhere. You know, everybody uses that language because that is how they can position themselves as the savior, as the messiah that should be entitled to the political office they are seeking or that they are trying to maintain. But if you look at the converse, when people who are in more democratic societies, more liberal societies, talk around defending or protecting the rights of LGBT people, it's, it's not about political power or political gain. And so there is no single pattern or no single way that everybody goes to do it. They have different strategies, different approaches. 
So, yes, there is inconsistency in similarity. Different contexts have their own issues and they have their different time periods that these issues arise. But the way in which it is deployed and which it is uh, utilized by politicians is almost eerie in how similar it is, even down to sometimes the same catchphrases, the same tone, the same language, the same diction in politicians across different countries. And that's how you know that this is almost as though it is a pre-planned and, and a strategic uh, 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 way of, of gaining power. Mm. These being the issues that are affecting um, sexual minorities in Nigeria and the rest of the world, does your research proffer recommendations for how to navigate these issues? So, yes, indeed. Uh, because I'm writing in particular for advocates, and for what they can do to ensure that you know they understand and tackle this power dynamics in dealing with their advocate or in pushing their advocacy. Um, I, I talk about I give about three recommendations in particular. Uh, broadly speaking, one is for advocates to emphasize more the role of power dynamics in human rights conversations and discourse. Because very too often we find that uh, we flatten our conversation and talk about issues as though everybody belongs in the same category. Uh, but if that is not the case. The poor gay man on the streets of Lagos is facing very, very different issues from the billionaire uh, gay man who runs a multinational corporation, also in the same Lagos. And why is that? Because of the way class privileges people in different ways. Um, the also, the, the, the fact also is that the, the, the billionaire probably doesn't even see themselves as uh, a gay person first. Their first identity is probably their class. They are a billionaire. So even if they meet another gay person who is poor, they may not even sympathize with their issues. They may not even think of themselves as being in the same struggle. But when we write our advocacy papers, we write, oh, gay people in Nigeria are being oppressed. But there's only one of those two who is literally being oppressed. And the other might even be an oppressor. So we need to be more nuanced in how we say it. By saying, oh, poor gay people in Nigeria are being oppressed. Thereby highlighting the role that political, social, and economic power is playing in people's understandings of, of identity. So uh, that's one recommendation. The second recommendation is that we need to form more alliances with mainstream organizations in order to address democratic freedoms and socioeconomic empowerment and equality. Um, while there has been a lot of uh, you know, reasons, and there are a lot of reasons for LGBTIQ plus advocates to stay away from mainstream organizations who, are, who can be very homophobic, who can be very transphobic, who can be very close-minded about the intersections between LGBT advocacy and other issues, there still needs to be a, a continuous attempts to reach out to these mainstream organizations and to try and create some kind of alliance because uh, at the end of the day, um, the issues that affect the LGBTQ plus community are buried in the kind of democratic society that the society has in the first place. So issues like the rule of law, issues like uh, electoral laws and transitions, issues like constitutional reform in different ways, issues like even the distribution of resources and power in society, representation in government, should matter to LGBTIQ plus advocates. We can't focus solely on just, uh, you know, what 
protections a gay person or a lesbian or a trans person needs. Yes, those are very important, and that is the destination. But the route for getting there includes democratic growth and democratic strengthening. So that means organizations that work around democracy should be interacted with, should be, should be, should be, you know, engaged just to be assured that you know we are all working towards that wider system of, of democratic growth. And when that happens, you find that again from research, I, I, I incorporated this in my work, that there is a correlation between countries with strong democracies and countries with more inclusion for LGBTQ plus persons. Not because democracy in itself automatically will give you that right or that freedom, but because it gives you space and opportunity for negotiating with people and persuading people and generally ensuring a process of continuous development and growth and change for, for, for more people. And um, in, in essence, if you have a society where there's a rule of law, where the independence of judiciary is respected, where there's a free press, you have a better chance of getting your advocacy to progress than when you have a society where you know nobody cares what the judges do or the courts do and nobody listens to court orders and things like that, which is still seen in a lot of countries where there is repression of LGBT people. So advocates must fight not just for their own rights, but for the strengthening of democracy within their society. And then finally, I'll talk about the need to design and implement uh, collaborative strategies that focus on the economic development of members of the community. So uh, while we wait for the wider democratic progress to happen, for democratic reforms to happen, we should also start now to meaningfully empower people, not just in terms of teaching them their rights, but also giving them the means to be able to enforce their rights. And it's not just about handouts, you know, but also about uh, designing projects that actually puts money or resources in the hands of community members. So we see too often that donors and people who finance projects are only focused around, you know, the, the talking, talking aspects of things. Why that might be okay in a country that already has good judicial and uh, legal systems, you can go and talk your way to freedom, you know, you can go to a court and argue. In countries where money still plays a very important role, you might have all the rights on paper, but have none in reality because you just don't have the economic power to enjoy and enforce those rights. So, pending when we have that free and fair society, we as advocates should also begin to think around ideas like scholarships that we can give our people so that they can be self-improved and come back to hold you know, positions of authority and power in their own society too. Are there things like soft laws? Are there things like uh, uh, cooperatives? You know, design projects for actual communal empowerment and not just about you know, the, the, the mental or intellectual empowerment. So those are some of the, the recommendations I made. <laughs> Okay. So some of your recommendations and in your research, have you also considered bringing political leaders to the table mm -hmm. to engage them on some of these issues? So yes, uh, I wish I could say, <laughs> yeah, I do that. But the theoretical framework that I'm coming from is saying that, you know, the political leadership, the elite, the structures of government themselves are the problem because they have been set up and designed in a way that their very existence prevents every other person in society from being able to access equal rights in the society. So any kind of solution that you are proposing has to start with, you need to get out of the way 
first of all, and I do not think there are many government officials who are going to sit down and agree. Well, the, the regular staff may agree, but certainly the people make their job. Of course. They are going to disagree. <laughs> so, um, yes, there are opportunities for dealing with members of the government when it comes to particular areas of change, like sensitivity for the police and things like that. But the wider question around how is the police ideology itself structured? What is the way in which power is distributed in society? Why are some people more under threat than others in society? It's not just uh, a matter of training. It's a matter of uh, uh, structure. Like, and that structure essentially requires that the existing systems need to give way to more democratic systems. And if that happens, the people in power today are not necessarily going to be in the, power, the people in power under those new systems. So they are the least, the last and the least likely people to help to join to create those new systems. Ultimately, this will be something with the people themselves. I know, you know, maybe passive as maybe a bit aggressive or, or violent or whatever, but I mean, that doesn't have to be the case. Mass agitation can be done in ways that doesn't include you know, violence or, or burning things down. Just even sittings, just strikes, you know, things like that to demonstrate popular agitation can actually compel the political elite to the, to the negotiation table and say, okay, what kind of system do we need to redesign? You know, now that we talk about um, aggression, I can only imagine in a country like Nigeria where there's a lot, uh, we've seen police brutality. I can imagine the kind of retaliation um, activists would possibly get from political leaders. So actually, this is something that I'd like us to, to just get into quickly. I'd like to find out if you faced any kinds of like backlash or pushback or challenges while you were embarking in your research? If so, what was that like? No, no, fortunately, most of my research was done within the community and trying to understand their own perspectives of power and how they are dealing with it in their day-to-day -day lives. And, uh, and that is where you begin to see people saying, look, you know, even though I am a gay person, my struggles are different from this or that gay person who doesn't even see me as a fellow community member because mm. they, they have other issues and different issues they, that worry them. Um, so no, I did not work within or I did not do my research within the structures of power themselves because one, it wasn't going to be productive because it would tell me anything that was honest. Nobody with power truly says I have power. <laughs> okay, they can fair only enough. demonstrate it to you and mm. not in a very, you know, positive way. In fact, in, 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 during my research travel, I had to even go anonymously to one of the provinces in Nigeria, where we call them states, where I had uh, done my research because the governor of that state was somebody who had actively uh, attacked me on social media, who I knew could actually get me you know, arrested if I, <laughs> if I was in that state. So that is the kind of, of uh, system in which one is doing this work. Hmm. That's quite interesting. And I think it does speak to what you said at the beginning when you said you decided to embark on this journey to effect social change. So uh, I think it would be important as well for our listeners and those that would like to embark on the journey of attaining a PhD that it's not it's not a romantic journey. You're going to come across certain challenges. And I think it's important to just be ready and prepared to take on those challenges to create the social change that you might desire. As we wrap up, can you give some words of advice to those who would like to also, you know, follow your footsteps and take or embark on the journey that you have? Well, uh, 
first first of all, are you sure <laughs> you want to do that? And if you really are sure, then you, you should know that it's always a rough, rough road ahead. Then a PhD is not easy, it's not a walk in the park, it's something that is going to make you sit up late at night on some days wondering why you ever signed up for this. But at the same time, it's doable as people have done again and again. And, uh, you know, to, to get into that journey, you need to start by identifying an area that you yourself are positive about and you feel strongly about. Not just as uh, something to research on and write for your fellow academics to peer review, but something to actually help to change your society or improve certain things in your society. Because when you are very unsure whether you want to continue, it is your own curiosity, your own desire to see that change happen that will propel your your continuing study and propel you to go forward. You also need to, you know, find a good supervisor, someone who is empathetic. I'm grateful that I had someone like Professor Franz Villun and the, my co-supervisor, uh, Dr. Kira O'Connell, who are very, very empathetic and who supported me not just even uh, uh, in, in terms of academic or intellectual support but even sometimes even immaterial support also when things are rough so uh it's it's always important to have that kind of uh, person on your team and as well you cannot discount the value of having good friends uh loved ones in one's life who actually will be there for you and who understand when you know you are withdrawing or pulled back and same on, on communicative and unreachable and who also understand that they are they, they can give you encouragement and, and help you you so uh, when you have that kind of right uh, motivation, the right resources and the right support system, you'll find that doing a PhD can be much easier than more than difficult. Thank you. So would you like to just give your concluding remarks before we sign off? Well, thank you very much for having me here. I'm happy to be able to share my research and some of my findings and perspectives going into it. And I would just like to conclude that even though I have taken my own research from the perspective of uh, hegemonic power dynamics and the LGBTQ plus community, it's still a perspective that applies in a lot of ways to a lot of other issues. Because uh, at the end of the day, uh, whether it is in terms of uh, disability rights, whether it's in terms of housing, whether it's in terms of electoral system, land rights, whatever it is, there is always a set of people who are making our laws, who are getting the benefit of those laws. And even when we think we live in a free and fair society sometimes, you might be surprised that the little more uh, interrogation of how our systems work might show that we may not exactly be in control of our fate, as we like to think. And so no matter what we think we have, we must be ready to design a system that is more progressive and more inclusive of everyone around us. Um, that essential question is the question of power and how power is distributed. Um, in a society where, for example, only a few billionaires get the advantage of everything in society because of their money, they can change policy, they can lobby for change in laws. You may say, oh, everybody is free to lobby, but can you lobby? Do you have the resources it takes to lobby? Can you finance elections? Can you finance uh, politicians? You can't do any of that. So even though you have one vote and that other person has one vote, that person's use of money is going to make elections sway in their favor. And you may call that, oh, well, that's the price of capitalism or freedom, but that really is not a price that you should be paying. And you might have another society that is the extreme end where, no, it is not billionaires, but it's a small elite group of government officials or politicians who run and change 
society as a like who design laws, who design policies for the benefit of themselves and their families and friends. Same scenario, you are totally powerless. The only difference between the first and the second is at least in the second, they tell you directly you have no power. <laughs> and in the first, they, are, they pretend you have power. But in reality, in both cases, your fate has been sealed and determined by other people. That should not be the case. In every society, everybody should have their human autonomy. They should be able to decide what they want for themselves with minimal interference from their society and, and their government. And to the extent that you know the rights of, of everybody else is also protected and respected. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ayo. Thank you, listeners, for joining us in this week's episode. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Masina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.